Welcome. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs podcast and received compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. She is a member of ASHA Special Interest Groups 2 and 13, Medical SLP Collective, and the International Association of Oral Facial Myology. Phyllis Scott received compensation for this presentation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. She is employed by the Louisiana Department of Education as an education consultant. Phyllis is the owner of Thrival Communications Plus, LLC. She is currently a doctoral candidate at Walden University. Phyllis is a member of the American Speech-Language Hearing Association. She is a participant in the State Education Agency's Communication Disabilities Council. Today, we welcome Phyllis Scott. Phyllis Scott has spent her career paying close attention to the long-term pursuits, achievements, and adversities of individuals with disabilities, particularly those with language-based communication disorders. Her professional experiences and her own lifelong impairments have flourished her passion for improving the quality of life outcomes for individuals with communication, social, emotional, and behavioral disabilities and neurodiverse characteristics. Her concern extends to individuals with socioeconomic, racial, ethnic, age-related, and other diversity challenges. Phyllis is a nationally certified speech-language pathologist with over 32 years of experience as an SLP and champion for individuals with disabilities. She worked for 16 years providing speech-language therapy to students in pre-K through high school settings across multiple states and covering a full range of disabilities and severity levels. She served the past 16 years at the Louisiana Department of Education, where she provided coordination, supervision, monitoring, and complaint management for programs involving students with disabilities. Her advanced expertise includes Section 504 and disability rights, disability identification, literacy and dyslexia, positive behavior supports, and cultural diversity. Phyllis is near completion of Walden University's PhD program in social psychology, where she has also earned a degree in philosophy. Her goal is to align her work as an SLP and social psychologist to promote social change through her company, Thrival Communications Plus, by working with employers, agencies, providers, and families to provide training and support geared toward improving life results for individuals who struggle. She is here today to talk about a persistent social problem and the specific role that speech-language pathologists can play to redirect the future for young adults preparing for the workforce. Welcome, Phyllis. Hello, Mary Beth. I'm happy to be here today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm excited, and I'm excited to talk about this topic. Well, we are excited to dive in. So you referred to today's topic as a chance for SLPs to provide career readiness, life support to address a salient social problem. What is the social problem and what is its greater impact on society? Okay, so yes, I'm here to talk about the social problem and how SLPs really can make a huge impact. This social problem is that young adults with mild to moderate language impairments and emotion regulation deficits are in crisis, and they are indeed in crisis. They're in crisis because they exit high school, join the workforce, and essentially don't do well. 
They don't do well in the workforce. And the language deficits and emotion regulation deficits that they have highly impact their performance and ultimately their success or failure in the workforce. So regarding the impact on these individuals, this problem impacts these individuals, their families, and greater society. There is a huge and predictably cumulative effect that becomes more concerning over time, and I'll, I'll be able to explain that. Most of the SLPs on the line know that these young adults, those with mild to moderate language impairments, often have impairments that are linked to other impairments. They're comorbid and they are often linked to other hidden disabilities. These hidden disabilities might be ADHD, specific learning disability and dyslexia, maybe uh, mild cognitive impairments, perhaps behavior disorders, and it goes on and on, but this is a large population, these individuals with high incidence impairments. These students with mild to moderate language impairments are often able to graduate with mainstream expectations about life after high school. They and their families believe that they should be able to go out, earn a living, make a family, and live life happily beyond high school. They are indeed often able to get a job. Some have difficulty, but when I talk about they, I mean this population of young adults with mild to moderate language impairments. They go on, they pursue their eager They've struggled for 13 years in in grades, kindergarten through 12th grade. They've surely struggled because of their disabilities, but they graduate. So there's this concept of we made it, they made it, and they go on either to post-secondary, which really is only probably about 19% of these individuals versus more than double that for students without disabilities, but they go on expecting to be able to live their lives. And because they graduated, there's art really and truly some of them have dropped out, but they're out of high school. They're adults now. And the expectation is that they go do what other people do. And sadly, the research, the statistics, what we've come to know about how these individuals do is it's really dismal information because they many they are always outliers but many of these individuals we call them our babies not because we want to be condescending in any way we call them our babies because we recognize them we know their struggles and we love them very much but many times we see our babies out there in the workplace and we know that there are babies struggling. We know that they're having challenges that can't be seen, but they're there. We know them because of our area of expertise. But the bottom line is they don't thrive in the workplace. And this is supported by research. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that supports the social problem, what you're talking about here? 
Yeah. Okay. We first of all know that there are many factors that can impact whether or not a young person does well in the workforce. So I'm not suggesting that this issue is the only issue. I just know that it's a very, very critical and highly impacting issue. But in terms of some of the research, a lot of it is linked to, unfortunately, the criminal justice system. But these individuals graduate. It's a very, very large population But when you think about it. And that's because our individuals with high incidence disabilities really make up the largest group of individuals with disabilities entering the workforce from high school because the prevalence is so high. These are the everyday disabilities that we see. So you have a lot of these individuals going into the workplace, but the research shows that really by the time they're 24 years old, so let's just say four years later, many, many, many of them are not only not employed, but many are starting to just not even participate in the whole pursuit of work. And they call that workforce participation. This means that they're not just unemployed for a period, they've stopped looking. They're so discouraged, they've stopped looking. And between the ages of just say 18 and 30, you have high, high numbers of these individuals engaging in criminal activity and seeing a fate in our criminal justice system. We Individuals with disabilities make up about between 15 and 20 percent of the population. Of course, some of those are individuals with severe and profound impairments and those very visual impairments. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about those because that's about one percent or so leaving high school. Okay, we are talking about the masses, the larger group of individuals with disabilities, whether it's ADHD, dyslexia, learning disabilities, you know, any of those. So what ends up happening, what we know is that they do try to find jobs. They do try to work. And many of them are able to find jobs, especially in industry, lower skilled industries where workers are needed. But they simply have difficulty and that difficulty, the bottom line is it's because of their struggles, their challenges, their inability to use their language skills to effectively interact in the workplace and more importantly, to effectively cope with the daily stressors of the workplace, which for an individual with a disability are exacerbated by the fact that they've struggled with this disability maybe 13 or more years. And so they have ingrained, you know, feelings of doubt, their self-esteem and agency, their self-determination is a little bit compromised. So they've got to deal with the fact that they have left high school, even though they've graduated. The reality is that The employer may not know, but this individual has some lingering deficits. This individual Mm -hmm. enters the workplace with these deficits. 
communication challenges, some executive functioning, whatever the primary disability is. And sometimes it's only language, but usually language affects some others or other disabilities affect language. So they're already sort of entering the workplace with additional challenges. But the problem is, and this is supported by data, by research, employers are saying that even for kids and young adults who do not have disabilities, many are not ready on day one. Many are not entering the workplace able to solve problems, able to provide customer service, able to get along with people, able to use teamwork, able to be empathetic with others. These are non-disabled people without disabilities. So think about, again, our students who do have challenges in these areas, because no matter how hard we work, we certainly cannot sort of correct or get them to a place where these impairments disappear. Many of them do. Many of them improve. The competencies improve, but the reality is they enter the workplace with some lingering impairments. And so when someone, plus all of the doubt and in some cases, even post-traumatic stress from events that have happened along the way when they were in school, when someone goes to correct them or to tell them that maybe they didn't do something properly, which happens to workers in general, when it happens to these kids, they've already got years of self-doubt, years of this problem, this I can't do it right. Plus, many of them have emotional intelligence weaknesses as well. Even the ones without those emotional intelligence weaknesses often melt down, shut down. I can't do anything right. People are always picking on me. These are sometimes the people you see having outbursts in the workplace. Actually, these are sometimes the customers you see in certain work settings. Because these individuals also have trouble in community as well as in family, in the home, and in post-secondary settings. But where the consequence really affects them is in the workplace. Because you enter, you start the job. Employers know that they have to provide some additional training at times, but they want that to be technical training. They don't want to have to tell you that when you disagree with someone, this is how you do it. This is inappropriate to disagree with someone in this way. They don't want to have to teach how to receive feedback. They don't want to have to teach how you handle being told something and then you've forgotten that you were told to do it or you misunderstood the instructions. Now you don't know what to do. You shut down. Are you embarrassed? So you go off. And these are the common behaviors, according to employers, that really affect this population. People who don't make it in the workplace often don't make it because of interpersonal skills, social communication, because many of us, if we don't know a skill, we can express an eagerness to learn a skill and we can be taught and it's okay. 
They don't expect right. you to know it all when you enter, but they expect you to be open. They expect you to know how to ask for what you need. They expect you to know how to deal with being corrected along the way. And this is where our kids struggle. So what happens to these kids is when they lose interest because they started, they got fired. They started, it was too hard. They quit. They started a job and it just was so stressful they're not at that job anymore. You know, what happens is they have to resort to other options to meet their needs because their dependency definitely increases their dependency on family, on governmental resources, on sometimes crime. And so many of them end up incarcerated. And even the recidivism for this group is really high. And there's a, we're starting to have lots and lots of research about that. Unfortunately, it's not all specific to language impairments, but we're starting to have a little bit more. But some studies and some statistics show that up to 80% of the individuals in prison, you know, anywhere from 60 to 80%, depending on the location and the geographical area, are individuals with these disabilities, not individuals with severe, profound disabilities, because there's a lot of work, there's a lot of vocational support. And I need to say that another reason I'm talking about mild to moderate kids, not only are they the ones who graduate and join the workforce, we have some other populations, but they're not in the mainstream workforce. They're working You know, kids with severe disabilities may be working through a voc rehab agency that really places them with a job, but this is not the mainstream, the broader workforce. And I think that's wonderful for those kids, but we're talking about the ones who maybe enter the workforce and don't even tell their employer. They're not even able to express. Yeah, they're not able to even really talk about their disability in a way that an employer would receive it and want to support. And that's one of the things that we can help with, SLPs and any other special educators, just making sure that they're able to advocate for themselves. But most of the time when a job is lost, it's lost over bad behavior. And that brings up, you mentioned you had a couple of observations, a couple of case studies you wanted to share to exemplify these points. Can you share one or two of those? Recently, I've been talking about Christopher just because this is somebody I I knew personally. I watched this individual grow up. I watched to see how his life would unfold. But this is something that's always intrigued me. So I've really, really been paying attention. But you have kids like Christopher who you know, grew up in a rural area, had these challenges. He he also was a kid who grew up in foster care, but he, from early on, had trouble in school. Obviously, okay. going through the foster care system, he had some social, emotional, behavioral challenges, but he had a supportive family and, and engaging foster parents. And, you know, he had speech therapy in the beginning. He was initially 504, then progressed to special education services. He had speech therapy and he had some very basic, you know, problems. He also 
would get into fights at school. He had a personality that people really liked and it, it got him far. He was a loyal kid. He laughed at himself a lot. So, you know, people thought he was funny and he, he really did okay in elementary and middle school, even though he sometimes got into fights, even though he was sometimes embarrassed by the teacher. And so he, he did have some behavior issues. And that's one point I want to make. We have to pay attention to the kids who are having the outburst, not just the kids with autism, but kids who are having even periodic outbursts at school or altercations. I mean, because that's a clear indication that there's some kind of emotional sort of overload or some type of deficit in coping mechanisms. And so, you know, we saw that with Chris, but he got to high school and we saw a little more of that. But basically, everybody liked his family. They Mm -hmm. knew that he had these weaknesses. It was a small, it was a very rural community. So basically, they let a lot slide with Chris and he graduated. But then once he graduated, he's an adult out there. He wanted to work. He found jobs. And two weeks later, we'd hear and he'd say, you know, oh, I quit because uh, those people were stupid. And they were always, you know, talking at me like, I don't know anything. And he'd go on and on about the bad experiences on the job. Oh, I, you know what? I told him what he could do with his blah, blah, blah. Right. Or, or he got, you know, fired. So it, he had these very brief stints. And when you're listening, you can hear that he was told something. It embarrassed him. Maybe he reacted. Or someone made fun of him. Maybe he reacted. Or he did something wrong. And maybe he felt that they were really just picking on him. Or it could go on and on and on. My point is that with better coping mechanisms, ways to use verbal and nonverbal language to expect and address those problems as they come. Because for people with disabilities, oh, they will come. If you have a learning disability, there's something you're not going to understand. There's something you're going to forget to do. There's some sequence of directions that you might not follow properly. They will come. But how do you respond to it in a way that doesn't sabotage not only your workday, but perhaps the stability of that job. So what we're seeing is it's either overwhelming and these individuals quit, or the behavior is not responsible enough, according to employers, to keep there, to have them stay. So, yeah. And so some of the research says 80%. Well, why would this happen? 80% up to 80% of these individuals with disabilities in jail. Now, there's a lot of discussion about the prison pipeline, the school-to-prison pipeline. Can we qualify that, Phyllis? So 80% of those incarcerated have some type of... Between 60 to 80, some references are saying, have some type of disability and typically... It's one of the high incidence disabilities. 
what we know about these high incidence disabilities. And please know that some of these individuals are not identified. So there's more. That's why the number is so high. So we have individuals who are identified. We have individuals who were exited. We have individuals who were never properly identified. And we're not even talking about the ones with mental illness, although we know that they go hand in hand. Language impairments, the high incidence disabilities and emotion regulation, I mean, they're, it's hard to separate them because they're all interconnected. Cognitive skills, executive functioning skills. So the range of disabilities and the common deficits across disabilities, including in the area of language, are represented in this high population of individuals incarcerated. Of course, you know, there's a socioeconomic component, but basically if you don't have a job and you're a youngster who maybe even grew up in an area or a metropolitan or rural area, it doesn't matter, around people who are engaged in recreational drugs and some light criminal activity, if you're not able to keep a job, what is the likelihood that you're going to engage in some of these behaviors to earn a little bit of money here and there or to, you know, we're not even talking about the whole social connection and belonging issue that goes along with this. But so when you are not able to earn a living and people are expecting you to still have money, still be able to do things, still have good clothing, still, then the motivation for crime increases. Not saying that all of these people become criminals, but, and I'm certainly not making excuses, but it becomes more and more difficult when you're not employed. And understand that these are individuals who may take Christopher, for example, have a skill. I mean, he was good at woodworking. He could do some mechanic work. He had some technical skills. Okay. But he just couldn't survive a job. You know, it was two weeks here, two months there at the most, and off and on. So what happens? You don't have transportation because you don't have a reliable income. You can't purchase housing because you don't have a reliable income. So this, I watched this young man, and this is just a an example. It's a common example, though. If we really look at the wide spectrum of these individuals out in the world, it's very common. What do you do next when you can't keep a job? And you have the pride of, I'm a man, I need to be able to take care of my family. Or I'm a man, I can't ask somebody to marry me until I have a a good job. I have a child, how do I take care of this child? How do I provide? When there aren't a lot of options, So then you get involved in maybe some light crime, maybe some drug peddling. Well, what happens to our kids in that regard? Young adults with language impairments, emotion regulation deficits, social skills, weaknesses, these are not the ones that become the big drug dealers. These are not the ones who really make it because they don't understand the social cues of the environment. They don't understand even when they're being victimized at times. 
and I've watched this over and over, our students, because they may not pick up on all of the verbal and nonverbal nuances about people and situations, they themselves become victims of situations. So if you end up in jail once or twice, then you have a record that makes it harder to get community services. It makes it harder to find the next job. And the cycle just, it goes on and on and on. Well, you can also just think of the language needs if you are arrested and answering questions and trying to describe the narrative of what happened, especially in a high pressure situation. So on all of these things, you know, we talked about scope of practice. So many of these areas are within our scope of practice. And I think this is probably a good segue into how SLPs can help. Right. So this language emotion regulation issue is not the root cause. It is a root cause. It is one that I'm focused on because it's one that we can do something about as speech pathologists to mitigate. We certainly can't solve all the problems, but we can certainly provide some mitigation services to maybe prepare these kids to survive on day one, to survive the first three weeks or whatever during that probation period. To survive the probation period, we can help them prepare. And that's why I call it, you know, life support, because it is indeed that. I mean, because what we equip them for through some simple things that SOPs already know how to do can mean the difference between someone like a young Christopher staying on the job another day, staying another week. The employer working with that person to work through some of the issues. But if they have nowhere to start in the coping and in the management on the job, they don't have a shot. So what can SOPs do? What I'm talking about is not reinventing the wheel, not overwhelming your caseload because you're busy. I know that you are. And by the way, I know that you're working on emotion regulation in high schools with kids who need it. The issue is that in the research, it doesn't say that. There's absolutely almost no data outside of the 1% populations outside of autism that has a lot of research. There isn't a lot of research out there on what SOPs are doing in the high schools. And specifically around these kids with mild to moderate language impairments. Now, in my professional experiences, my 32 years of experience, I see what SOPs are doing and not doing in high schools. What I see is the number of kids on the caseload may be the same across the board. Caseloads are about the same across the board, maybe 11 or so students. but Those students are either kids with significant disabilities or kids with explicit goals that, you know, have some rigorous therapy, or these are kids who are being seen by the SOP on a consultative status, you know, some indirect services, maybe some some inclusion services. And I'm not here to criticize that in any way. Because 
I've been that SOP in the hall talking to Christopher about the outburst that he just had. I know SOPs are there solving problems and responding to students' problems every day. SOPs work very hard. They're good at what they do. But it appears as if, and this is based on the lack of research and what I've seen being able to connect with so many speech pathologists from other states, you know, what we talk about at all the many conferences Mm-hmm. And what I see when I go into schools to monitor, and this is probably where in the many, 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 many IEPs that I have reviewed through the years from a monitoring perspective or, you know, professional development, technical assistance, we're not seeing rigorous services for this particular population. And there are some reasons. There are some reasons. One is that these high school kids don't want to be in therapy. Right. And who has time as an SLP who's very busy, who's running around, this may be the third school, maybe you're only there one day a week, and Christopher doesn't want to be with the speech pathologist. So a lot of times these kids may be exited via appropriate IEP team meetings because they just don't want to be there. And sometimes SLPs say they plateau. Now, we know that we can't say they're commensurate anymore because sometimes kids can exceed what is believed to be commensurate with their cognitive skills. But we are not seeing rigorous descriptions and documentation of SLPs working with this population Many, many kids are receiving therapy. Many have been exited, but it's what I would say perhaps not as rigorous as it could be. Another reason is because there's so much focus on academic content. SOPs have a lot of pressure to demonstrate their contribution to the academic growth of students. And in high schools, these kids need a lot of support. So what you see a lot is the SLP working in the classroom to just really help this kid graduate. And that's a very valuable focus area. What I'm saying is we do focus on getting them to graduate, and many of them do. But we have to be concerned about whether or not they're able to compete once they do graduate. And that's equally important because you can't compete in the global market, which was, you know, in my state there, you know, there was a a lot around being able to compete in the global economy. You can't do that if you're not there. You can't do that if you're not on the job. You can't grow. You can't advance if it's sabotaged because you can't get along with the people. You can't get along with the supervisors. You don't know how to respond. So I am recommending that SOPs make a paradigm shift. And post-pandemic is a perfect time to reset. I commend SOPs for the work that they're doing because SOPs were leaders in the pandemic. SOPs were the first on board to go with the whole tele communication and virtual communication. SOPs, when I go into schools, have the best IEPs. They have the best documentation. I'm all in support of what SOPs do, but I'm asking 
SOPs out there who are working in high schools to really do a self-assessment, do some reflection, think about Are you really providing rigorous or are you providing more like reactive services for the kids who are having problems on a day to day? And if you are providing rigorous, very systematic, explicit teaching, are you documenting it well? And if you are providing rigorous, systematic teaching, is it just on the academic content or are you incorporating some of these emotion regulation? skills that kids need or will need once they leave school. And I'm just saying, if you're not, really look at it, assess it, use some reflection tools, you know, really take a good, honest look at yourself and ask, am I doing the things that make the most difference for when these kids will leave? Yes, Everything is important. Yes, all that you do is important. And I know that as an SLP, I know that from working in high schools, I know that from visiting so, so, so many high schools. But if you're honest with yourself, do you have some biases that prevent you from dealing with certain kids? Johnny, he's aggressive. He's this big, tall, angry guy. He is intimidating. If you're honest with yourself, is it Jesse doesn't want to be in therapy or is it maybe Jesse doesn't want to be in therapy, but I don't really want to deal with Jesse because he's scary. If we can conduct some personal assessments and really think about, yeah, you know, maybe I do have a bias here. Maybe I just think that, you know, he's just cutting up every day. He doesn't want help. Mm -hmm. But is that maybe a good excuse or is it more of a reason to reach out to? You know, we're so innovative as speech pathologists. We can do a whole two-hour session without any materials. You know, we're just that good. I know this about speech pathologists. So are we relying on the excuse that Johnny doesn't want to come. He's resistant. He's plateaued because it's difficult. Or can we find some ways to innovate, to maybe involve other people, to perhaps really start to talk to Jesse about some real agency and self-determination issues? Because even Jesse wants to be able to work. Jesse wants to do well on a job. So is there a way for us to pull in Jesse with this whole concept of, look, when you leave high school, you know, let's talk about. And then for a speech pathologist, the reason I say you don't have to reinvent the wheel is because the same pragmatic language activities you've been using for years still work. You can tweak them to focus on college and career and still embed the content of the classroom in those scenarios. For example, if chances are Johnny, he has executive functioning issues, he has ADHD, he has some language impairments, you know, he has some emotion regulation and anxiety issues. What are the chances that Johnny is going to encounter a problem that is going to overwhelm him on the job? whether it's something he's told to do that he doesn't know how to do or something that he has never done and he's afraid to do 
or something that he just doesn't know how to get started on. What can the SOP do? You know what? The SOP can prepare very specific prompts and scripts for when Johnny is given negative feedback. Johnny, let's talk about it. You know, when you're on a job, you know, you get negative feedback. We get it, you know, as an SOP, we might get it from other teachers. We might get it from the principal. It's just a part of working. And sometimes it's embarrassing. But here's something that you can say. You can specifically say A, B, or C when somebody comes to you with negative feedback. It gives you a chance to react to it without being overly emotional. It gives you a way to respond. You know what to say. So I guess I'm just thinking the SOPs can develop these prompts, use some role play scenarios, embed the content of the classroom. You know, if they're learning about climate change, well, let it be a some type of job that is in the climate change and is dealing with uh, protecting the climate and use some of that vocabulary, but give Johnny a chance to respond to the fact that he was in the group, the small group at work, and he didn't know what they were talking about. He was lost. What can Johnny do or say? Give him the words and show Johnny, here's one thing you can do when you're in a group and you don't know what's going on, you're totally confused. What's a way you might react? You might get embarrassed. You might walk out. You might say that you, you know, not feeling well and you, and you want to go home for the day. You might do and say some things that get you out of the situation, but improperly. But here's something you can say. What if the boss asks you a question and you just really don't know the answer to? Here's what you can say. Let's practice. So that's not something new to SLPs. That's actually something that SLPs are really good at. Develop a template that can be customized and used for a lot of different groups. That way you're not always lesson planning. But know that it's the coping and dealing with the stress of the workplace that can become too much for our kids with mild to moderate language impairments to survive. And right. when they don't survive, bad things happen. It's great when people have a wonderful support system and really help them along the way. But at the very least, the quality of life is compromised because when you don't have income, well, then you don't have access. You might not have access to good medical care. You might not have access to housing or consistent housing. Christopher was moving from one place to the other. He never really lived anywhere. He didn't want to be at home with his foster parents. They lived out in the country. And basically, that was an area he sometimes got into trouble with. So he spent time in the city, but then he was exposed to some things that were not always legal. So he went from cousin to cousin, from friend to friend. He was always moving from one place to the other. He lived with girlfriends. He's 40 now and he's living with a lady because he's a nice guy, but his work history has been 
dismal. He's been to jail a few times. It gets harder and harder for him. I wanted to say another example because it's not always about the kids who have the outbursts, the aggressive ones. We know we see those, we hear them in the hall. So we know the ones who are acting out. But let's the teachers really, tell really, us about those ones. Mm-hmm, absolutely. But let's really, really pay attention also to those quiet kids or the kids who shut down. Because some meltdown, and yes, you know about it, some shut down. And sometimes at school, a teacher will pull you to, side, to the side and say, hey, you know, Melinda, what's, Mariah, what's, what's going on? What are you thinking? What happened? You could talk about it. That kind of support isn't always available in the workplace unless the employee, him or herself, really advocates for it. So when Melinda, who has a history of abuse, plus all these years of surviving with a specific learning disability, she has an anxiety disorder. When she believes that her coworkers are talking about her or when she feels maybe not included in what her coworkers are doing or if she is just embarrassed about something that happens, well, Mariah might shut down. Mariah might get into a big crying episode, but that's almost still like the meltdown that you see. But Mariah might also just stop. She just might not do the work. And do you know that that happens a lot? Sometimes when people don't understand or they don't say, can you repeat it in the instructions? Or I got some of it, but maybe, you know, I didn't understand all of it. Do you mind? I mean, there are so many ways we can teach them to respond to situations that would prevent an individual from just stopping are feeling excluded so that maybe if they even get through that work day, they call in sick the next day and they call in sick the next day. And if they don't have accumulated sick leave or those privileges at the time, because these individuals often work lower skilled jobs for less pay, less advancement, you know, it goes on and on. So they may not have benefits. They may not have days off accumulated. So when she calls in sick two days because she doesn't know what to say, that's it for that job. So how can we equip Mariah? You have to know the student, but there are so many things the SOP can do. But if in this situation, if you have kids on your caseload, I'm going to take two minutes to tell you some things that you can do that don't have to be too burdensome. You can, one, pay attention to who's already on your caseload. And are there kids who maybe you're focusing on academic content, reading comprehension, and you're doing it in a setting that's not so rigorous, that doesn't allow for a lot of systematic explicit, is this an opportunity for you to, and this is only if you see that these kids have some social coping issues, you can perhaps just recommend an IEP meeting and recommend changing the service delivery. Or even if you want to continue to use the service delivery that you're using, which might be consultation, and you have this kid 15 minutes 
once every week or two, well, can you teach systematically and explicitly specific verbal prompts? Because the coping, they can't get to how they're going to use their vocabulary and their analytical skills for other things on the job if they can't cope on the job. So my recommendation is to make sure you incorporate that systematic, explicit teaching and then create opportunities for that child to practice using those prompts. So collaboration becomes very important. And on the issue of collaboration, I am in no way saying that because a kid has language and emotion regulation difficulties, the SOP should be solely responsible for like correcting this kid or making this kid all ready for the workplace. That's not realistic. But what you can do is collaborate with other providers in the school and maybe This is a kid who does have some coping problems, and you can focus on the language that needs to be used and perceived, the verbal and nonverbal and social communication language for dealing with certain predictable, and I'm I'm saying just focus on the situations that you know will occur, because they occur for everybody, and you know that they're going to occur even more so for a person with a history of a disability, and then collaborate. Maybe the occupational therapy can deal with the adaptations and strategies. Maybe the counselor can start addressing, or maybe the counselor's already addressing triggers and all of that. Well, the SOP doesn't have to address all of that, but knowledge of the triggers can certainly help you to plan and prepare scenarios that can be helpful for a particular student. So collaborating with others to make sure no one's duplicating efforts and everybody is using their unique skill set to address the needs of these kids. And then since there isn't a lot of documentation out there, please, please, please document, document what's working, document what's not working, document any problems that you've solved around this, any barriers you've overcome, please, please, and share that information with other SLPs. Learn about, just do some Google reading about action research and the type of research that you can do at your school to address this. And maybe it is that SLPs are already providing rigorous services around this. I think some of them probably are, but if it's not documented, it's as if it doesn't exist. So if you have only reading comprehension or whatever high school listening skill you have on the IEP, if you're working on emotion regulation, say it. Make sure you have it linked to some specific goals and then you're tracking progress over time. And this helps with self-determination and agency. These kids are old enough to really be thinking about their future. They don't want to play games, but they'll do a a role-play scenario if they know how it's important. So let's cater the activities in a way that will make them want to participate, want to talk to you in the hall for 15 minutes about what's going on, and have them share 
some of their unique challenges and then prepare the templates or the prompts around things you know that they deal with personally. If they're easily triggered to embarrassment or if they really don't like when someone corrects them or they shut down when they don't know what to do. Yeah, these are opportunities to really help them see how this is going to really improve their chances over time, especially as an adult. And just learn, continue your professional growth. And if, you know, if pragmatic language skills is something you did a long time ago, but maybe you hadn't focused a lot on lately, well, you know, pull out some things to read and talk to other SLPs. But when you talk to SLPs, I just encourage you to not get into a gripe session about, oh my gosh, they want us to do everything. And and this is literally, I just finished talking to about five or six therapists over the last month and everything was, it's so much, it's so much, it's so much, I'm exhausted. I'm going to retire. I'm, you know, maybe this is the thing, the purpose, maybe this is the mission Maybe this is that one thing that post-pandemic, after you're so exhausted and drained, can really give you a new, a renewed focus, passion again, knowing that you can really impact the lives of so many people. Because remember, this is a large group and they impact others. So I, I just encourage you to just revisit how you're handling emotion regulation and language at the high school level, how you're connecting that to career readiness and employability, and just how you can do your part to really make a difference. Or if you're doing it, I commend you. I commend you for even wanting to still be an SLP in schools post-pandemic because, yes, many individuals are leaving the school setting since the pandemic. But maybe you could be one of the ones who is committed to stay and really, really make a difference and help other educators do the same by maybe sharing the prompts with them or, you know, just collaborating and spread your knowledge because SOPs have a lot of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Phyllis, this has been so helpful. It's really exciting to think of the life supports that we can give these individuals and the differences that we can make as SLPs and in changing some of these statistics. And I'm encouraged about your encouragement for the research that we can do in settings where we are already already have the ability to do that research. So it's just a matter of documenting. So really, really appreciate it. And good luck to you with everything that you have going on. I know you're almost finished with that PhD and we would love to have you back to talk more. So again, I know you have another Speech Therapy PD. I think it's a video course coming up. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? It is. I believe in August with Speech Therapy PD, I'll be talking about some of the same issues in a little more detail and providing a little more practical support for SLPs to use in school settings. So if you're available and interested in that conference, I don't have the title yet, but it'll it'll be around the same topic in more detail. And also, I would love to just tell you that my company, Thrival Communication Plus, 
will be launching its website very soon. It actually was supposed to be this Monday, so I've been told another two weeks, but it's Thrival, T-H-R-I-V-A-L-C-P for communication plus dot com. And I'd love to have some of you join the Thrival movement. It's all about helping people to push past their struggles, whatever they are, disabilities, dysfunction, defeat, and just know that you can have more in life. Know that you can reach your highest possible quality of life. You can do more. And so that particular business is all about providing support and services, resources around social, emotional, and behavioral communication skills and coping. And so I look forward to meeting and hearing from some of you soon. And Mary Beth, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to the audience. Well, thank you for coming and joining us today and sharing all of your insight. We really do appreciate it and look forward to seeing you again soon. I appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.